Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Hawk Carlisle, the president and CEO of the National Defense Industrial Association, on the organization's third annual Vital Signs Report on the health of the national security industrial base. But first, my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm, Capital Alpha Partners, with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, thanks so much for joining us. It wouldn't be Monday without you. Good to chat as always, Vago. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And Huntington Ingalls Industries sponsored our coverage of the Surface Navy Association's recent conference and trade show. It wouldn't be Monday if it didn't start with our little uh, conversation here. One of the great events uh, before each budget is the conclave of top Washington defense analysts uh, who give us their take on what we should expect today. We heard uh, from Todd Harrison of CSIS, Mackenzie Eaglin of AEI, Stacey Pettyjohn of CNAS, Tom Spore of Heritage, and Travis Sharp of uh, CSBA, and obviously Seamus Daniels, uh, who works with Todd at CSIS, was the host of this. Uh, you know, we talked about when uh, the budget and the national defense strategy will come out, right? Early, uh, early estimates uh, in early March. Uh, Todd uh, was cynical going late on April 15. And what the new, uh, what the administration is going to ask for span from 733 billion on the low side to 765 on the high side. Give us your takeaways from this com- uh, conversation that covered an enormous amount of ground. We covered everything from nuclear policy to budgetary amounts. What were, you know, all the way over to PPBE, what were the key takeaways from that budget discussion from your perspective? Well, you're right, Fago. It really was kind of the pro bowl of Washington uh, defense budget and strategy people, uh, you know, in the spirit of the uh, football game that got played on, on Sunday. But I, you know, I thought the most interesting thing, and I'm not surprised at all, uh, given, given, you know, what you kind of teed up was just the range of views there. I don't think there was a really a strong consensus across the board. I mean, everything from the budget numbers that you mentioned for the fiscal 23 request to the release date of the FY23 budget, I think the span was anywhere from March 14th to April 15th. Um <clears throat> You know, some of the programs that uh, could be cut by the administration, FARA, the, uh, the optically manned fighting vehicle at the Army, um, you know, divestitures, I think a, a range of, of views <clears throat> on, you know, what DOD could divest <clears throat> or frankly, what they should divest. And, you know, but I would say I did not hear a lot of disagreement on the, the national defense strategy. Uh, you know, that, that seemed to be one area where there, there's a fair degree of consensus that, you know, they're not going to be major muscle movements out of this thing. But I, I think that's kind of a consensus view. Um, and then obviously, you know, kind of the breaking news that occurred during the event was <clears throat> the text got released for the continuing resolution that the House will take up this week. Um, so that, that kind of put one issue aside. I suppose one thing that really didn't get discussed in detail was, okay, that's the FY23 budget request. What do you think Congress is going to do with it? And when will they pass it? Because I, I, I think it's a, you know, highly likely that because it's an election year, you'll see another, a CR to start it. And then you really have to ask the question, uh, you know, Tom kind of raised this, that 
you know, if the administration comes in low, Congress will top it back off again. You know, but that has to be viewed through the optics of the midterm election outcome. And, you know, we could yet see another very extended uh, 2023 budget um, with multiple continuing resolutions. Because I don't think we've really seen, you know, a lot of the, <laughs> the partisanship um, or um, the bipartisanship that would that would lead to any easier outcome in FY23 than we're seeing so far in 22. Uh, where is your betting on uh, whether or not we have a full year CR or not? Obviously, Tom was expressing a concern. Tom Spohr, uh, retired United States Army Lieutenant General, uh, was con- expressing some concern, in, and he was factoring that into his uh, budgetary uh, planning, why he ended up with a little bit of a, of a, of a, of a higher number. You know, Michael Hurston of American Defense International has been saying we should have a deal by early March. Uh, are you, you know, are you are you sticking with that consensus that actually um, we won't have a full year CR? No, I'm I'm of the view that we will not have a full year CR, and I think part of that is just the backdrop about what's going on in Europe right now. Um, I also think you know the, the DoD leadership laid it out in pretty stark terms, the impact that a full year CR would have. And, you know, when you start talking about the impact on jobs, on, on military readiness, I mean, it, it is a midterm election year. And that's why I'm not of the view that we'll have a full year CR, because I think there'll be real political uh, penalties to pay for it, uh, both nationally and internationally, quite bluntly. In a, in a different security environment, yeah, maybe it could happen. If you don't have a budget deal by April, you know, at a certain point, it just becomes self-defeating. I mean, you, you can't wait and have another CR through June or July. I mean, the fiscal year ends September 30th. So this thing really has to come together in April or early May. And then, then I'm willing to throw in the towel and say, oh boy, we're, we are going to have a full year CR. But, but, you know, there's still a couple of weeks here, I think, to, to hopefully pull something out. I don't know if, if the new March date is going to be the time that it gets done. I know, you know, on your show on Friday, Michael had thought, you know, the, the, the closer in the, the new CR date would be, the more likely there'd be an agreement. I think you still can tack on another CR uh, before FY22 gets done. Um, and we're going to have uh, a little bit of a, of a deeper look uh, at, at um, uh, what uh, expectations are of the budget as well as the national defense strategy. Um, you know, one of the points uh, that was made uh, was, uh, and I think Travis Sharp uh, may have made this case, uh, but I apologize if I'm misattributing this, that whatever budget comes out and whatever national defense strategy comes out is not just the domestic document, right, to appease climate uh, change and sustainability advocates or uh, progressives, right? I mean, it's it's a global document. So friend and foe will read it alike. So if there are Pollyanna concepts in it or, uh, you know, absurd or uh, investments or too little investments, it will have implications, right? I mean, there are nuclear doctrine questions, obviously, uh, as the administration tussles within itself, right, among the anti-nuclear forces and those that may be somewhat more uh, muscular do you think that whatever the administration comes up with is is going to be something that friend and you know that friends will be reassured by and adversaries will note or do you think that there is a danger that yeah i mean i think it was todd who made some of the points about uh you know climate change and and you know some of the broader goals that the administration had that this is really semantics and i think his term was window dressing 
that can be in the FY23 budget. I mean, sure, if, if they start throwing massive uh, amounts of money at these, but you know, are they really gonna try and reshape force structure or modernization priorities, you know, triple the military construction budget so you have more resilient bases due to climate change? No, I, I, don't, I didn't hear that. So I, I think um, the point about window dressing and semantics, you know, to look at what the dollar signs are, not necessarily what some of the, the text is. Uh, yeah, he made the case that uh, the Pacific Defense Initiative is actually a branding exercise for yeah. stuff actually that's largely already being uh, spent on. In fact, that was kind of a, a criticism, right, that the administration didn't take credit uh, for things and more credit for things that it was already doing. We've got a couple of minutes left. Uh, obviously, a big week um, uh, with a lot of senior folks talking all over town. Uh, what is it that our audience should be paying attention to over the coming week? Well, there is, Vago. I mean, it's it's and obviously, you know, the timing is pretty interesting because of what's going on internationally as well as what is happening um, domestically, you know, with the budget discussions we just talked about. And obviously the FY23 budget is still in effect pre-decisional, but National Defense Industry Association is holding their annual expeditionary warfare conference. Uh, there can be a lot of deep dives on, you know, what, what the Navy and the Marine Corps are doing here. Um, you've got the Secretary of the Army, uh, Christine Wormuth speaking at CNAS on February 8th, and then the Army Chief of Staff, General McConville, was speaking at February 10th at Heritage, so it'll be a, a pretty good week to hear what the Army is thinking about. Um, and then there's some things that are a little further afield. Um, there's a small SAT symposium that's taking place in California February 8th to 10th. I think Todd, during the event today, called out that you know he thought space was an area that would be uh, fairly well represented in the FY23 budget. And obviously, a lot of you know what's happening in the small SAT sector has some real interesting implications for future DoD architectures. Um, there will be you know additional events on uh, related to Ukraine and Russia. What's going on there? Um, and I believe CSIS is also having an event on U.S.-Korea defense cooperation in the Biden administration that, that looked pretty interesting too. And uh, very uh, quickly, uh, two points. Uh, Russia, uh, does Russia go into Ukraine uh, anytime soon, right? You've been sort of monitoring yeah. uh, whether or not there's an invasion. There is this sense that uh, Putin is waiting until after the Olympics to do something. Uh, your sense about whether that's still a go or a no-go? Uh, I still think it's a go. I mean, uh, you know, the, the question is, what, what form of legitimate political discourse does he want to have with Ukraine? And I think, you know, what he's signaling right now, it's going to involve a, a pretty massive conventional force. Um, you know, I, I think you, you've got to frame it by the Olympics, um, the, the German chancellor's visit to uh, Moscow, I believe that's uh, February 15th. So I, I'd still think, you know, and after, after February 15th, February 20th, end of February, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen then. If, it, if Russia doesn't act by that point, then I, I think you really have to start dialing it back because there, there are already uh, reports today about, you know, just the degradation and troop readiness, the conditions that some of these Russian troops are living in, intense. Um, you know, you're, you're going to degrade your force pretty quickly. Uh, there was also a report today I saw about a massive COVID outbreak. So, um, <laughs> you know, I think Russia is kind of in a use it or lose it 
spacer. Right. And, and if they don't act um, and start pulling these forces back, the crisis will pass. Well, and there, there is there is this sense that um, you know he's going to maybe be making some decisions on the week of the 14th, right, in, in order yeah. to be executed and to move ahead. What's fascinating is he has everybody negotiating on his terms at this point, whether it's about missile deployments, whether it's about uh, NATO accession or anything else, right? I mean, I think it's absolutely fascinating how his absurdist demands have driven uh, the, these sort of talks uh uh, and, and considerations. Uh, one uh, very uh, last quick point, PPBE, obviously a national commission that's going to be looking at that, Bob Hale, uh, former Pentagon comptroller and, and, and a comptroller's comptroller and an all-star uh, at that, uh, and somebody who's been talking about the importance of uh, redoing PPBE. Just give us uh, 15 seconds uh, on why you think that's important and some well, thoughts. Both the House and Senate leadership and the Armed Services Committee couldn't have done a better job picking the, the first, the initial four uh, people for the commission. Um, look, it's going to take a while, probably longer than it should, <clears throat> to deliver preliminary and then final reports to Congress. But, um, you know, how DOD resources things, if, if you can start shortening and changing those timelines and give, providing more budget flexibility, it's going to have an impact on contractors, how contractors act and who can play and who can't play. Byron. Thanks, as always, for joining us. Really appreciate it. Have a great week and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Vago. And a word from our sponsors, GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of Joint All-Domain Command and Control. And joining us now is my good friend, retired United States Air Force General Hawk Carlisle, the president and CEO of the National Defense Industrial uh, Association, one of the nation's uh, great organizations uh, advancing the needs of the American uh, national security uh, industrial base to discuss uh, the organization's third annual Vital Signs Report on the Health and Readiness of the Nation's Defense Industrial Base uh, that was produced in cooperation uh, with analytic firm uh, Govini. Uh, Hawk, welcome back to the program. Thanks so very much for joining us. Hey, thanks, Vago. It's great to be here. Uh, look forward to chatting with you as always. Uh, in, indeed, uh, an absolute pleasure. Uh, thanks very much. Sorry, uh, Wes Hallman is, is not joining us uh, for, for this one as he has in, in the past. Uh, this is the second uh, report that was produced under the scourge of COVID, right? There were a lot of implications for uh, the industrial base, a little bit higher costs, supply chain issues, which everybody is still struggling with. Uh, so even though the defense industrial base was a critical infrastructure and, and did get preferential treatment and folks could work out of offices and, and the like, uh, and interestingly, the COVID-specific impact was not as grave uh, because companies did take precautions. But walk us through the key takeaways uh, from the report, because you guys looked at everything from uh, cost impacts to policies to uh, innovation to COVID, et cetera. Walk us through the key findings across the board. This is our third annual report. So, and you're right, it's kind of the second one under COVID, although, you know, it looks back. So these are lagging indicators. So the last one, although it was during COVID, the impacts of COVID really hadn't hit. So this is the first report that really has the impact of COVID and, and uh, probably the high line, uh, the headline that I think everybody will talk about is uh, when we looked at the eight different sectors and 52 different specific indices and in, in the analytic work that Govini did for us, which was spectacular, um, the defense industrial base uh, got a failing score of 69. The previous two years, it was 72 uh, and 72 twice. And then this year it was 69. Uh, and a lot of that's the COVID impact. Um, and I think uh, 
it's the COVID impact for COVID specific things, but I also would say that uh, COVID accelerated and highlighted some of the, you know, intrinsic problems with the defense industrial base environment um, that were already underway. It's just COVID kind of highlighted them. Supply chain is one that's a, clearly, we knew supply chain was a problem before, um, but COVID accelerated the challenges with the supply chain. So, so that, uh, uh, that was a COVID impact, but it was already there. So I think there's two things that I would say. One is, uh, and I, this is kind of a foot stomper, is the report is not uh, grading that companies themselves uh, or any companies or the defense companies, it's grading the environment they're operating in. So I use the analogy of the other day, it's like quarterback rating and fig guy's trying to throw uh, the football in 40 mile an hour swirling winds and blowing snow he's not going to have very good quarterback rating even if he's a great quarterback well that's kind of what we're talking about here the the report vital signs talks about the environment that the defense industrial base is operating in and and the big ones the big takeaways are the ones that we would have you know that we again we saw before supply chain fragility of the side plant, uh, supply chain single point failures workforce is a huge challenge that was accelerated by COVID with, uh, you know, obviously uh, the lack of uh, talented, technically capable workforce, the exodus of many of them, especially some of the folks uh, that were more senior. Um, the cybersecurity issue, uh, intellectual property and those things was highlighted again with adversary actions that was present before and that's continued. The surge capability of the defense industrial base is one that I think uh, you'll see in this report is highlighted as well. So um, th there's uh, there's challenges in the environment, and I think as a nation we have got to address these um, so that we can continue to provide our warfighters with the leading edge capability in the world. You know, some of these things, uh, uh, Hawk, have hit everybody across industry, right? Supply chain, manpower drains, uh, and and the like. Um, how much of this is unique to the defense industrial base? Uh, because I want to get to solutions uh, in, in a moment. And how much of it is just sort of almost everybody has been hit by this, right? I mean, uh, you know, you guys mentioned the decline, for example, in uh, research and development spending, and I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, but, you know, that in part was driven by the Budget Control Act uh, between 2011 and 2016, uh, for example, right? How do we need to you know, what, what are the industry specific things? Because, right, I guess you have to bound what you want to control and change um, ultimately. Right. So, I, you know, the, I think there's a couple of things and your research and development is a good point. And I think, frankly, one of the challenges in our country is the basic research, the 6162 that we're not spending enough money on because that's the seed corn. And, you know, Mark Lewis, our uh, executive director of the Emerging Technologies Institute will tell you that that's one of the things that concerns him is that uh, lack of funding and basic research. But, you know, you're right. It hit across it, it hit across all of industry, economy and, it, uh, you know, across the world, frankly. The defense industrial base has a few added challenges. One is the clearance challenge. So, um, you know, there was a backlog of security clearances. There is still a backlog, which hampers the capability to get folks into, into the key jobs, especially as you lose some uh, of the more senior ones that uh, have decided to leave. Um, the other one is uh, because the U.S. government is not always the easiest customer to work with, the agility of the defense industrial base to respond, uh, to adapt to changing environment, 
um, you know, the, the ability to accelerate things and, you know, that, that it's harder uh, in the environment with a defense industrial base because just the process by which we resource them, how we buy things, the time it takes. You know, you've heard uh, former Vice Chairman uh, John Hyten talk about we've got to get faster, we've got to get faster. Everybody talks about that, but that to me is the area where I think we really can, we, we really have to put our focus, and that is how do we accelerate the process how do we get more agile in our acquisition and our development of capability? How do we get in the hands of the warfighters faster? Um, and it's how we resource. And and right now, obviously, it's a it's a kind of a huge challenge for the for the defense industrial base because it the the federal acquisition system for the Department of Defense does not react quickly. Um, let me uh, ask you uh, to address a criticism uh, that's come up even in a couple of days that the report uh, has has been up, right? That while the overall uh, grade uh, dropped, there are those who say, look, the industry is really uh, posting um, uh, not quite a record, but very, very strong margin and cash flow uh, despite the pandemic, uh, right? I mean, the industry was deemed critical infrastructure. The department did a whole bunch of things to accelerate cash into the hands uh, of the department, indeed, the military side tried to mitigate impacts on the commercial side of a lot of these businesses, knowing the commercial aviation business was in chaos uh, because of the pandemic. And companies ultimately bought back $15 billion in stock rather than increase their R&D investment or uh, talent uh, recruitment and retention. At least that's the criticism. Um, you know, uh, how, how do folks need to look at this uh, in an environment where folks are looking at the industry and saying, I don't know, the performance looks pretty good despite all of these challenges. So, uh, yeah, it, it's a good point. I, you know, I'd say everybody's entitled to their opinion, but, you know, that's one, that's only one indice. That's only, you're only looking, if you're looking at margin and cash flow and those things, that's only kind of in one indice. And, and there's so many other things that are part of it, the workforce, the cleared workforce, the supply chain, the fragility, that single point failures, um, uh, the efficiency, the surge capacity in case we needed it. Obviously, that's something that people don't talk about a lot. But when you think about it, look at what happened to us with, with PPP, PPE, uh, personal protective equipment. I mean, our surge capacity took a while to spin up. Well, in defense, you know, you can't take a while to spin up because you obviously have huge challenges, just like you do in the case of the pandemic. So I think the, the problem with people that look at it that way is they're only looking kind of from one angle. And that, you know, is that's profitability of those companies. Um, and so th th you kind of have to look at all the industries. As I said, we look at eight specific areas and 54 different indices. And, you know, with the data analytics that Govini is able to do, we we really have data to back up uh, what we're saying. So there's there, there, you have to look at the entire picture and not just that. For example, the lack in R&D funding, uh, you know, buying back shares, you have to ask why. Uh, well, companies have to be profitable. Earnings per share and shareholder value is still part of the equation in a, in a capitalistic society. And the fact of the matter is that they're, if, they're, if they if their investors and their stockholders could see a payback on that investment uh, in a rapid form that they would say, yeah, it makes sense, then they probably would spend more. But if you look at it, the way the government works, the lack of agility, the fact we're on a CR now for what, we're in our fifth month in a CR and it could go, it probably will go longer. Why would companies invest in R&D 
when they go, hey, I, I, I don't know when or how I'm going to get a payback on this investment. So I think you have to ask more questions and just look solely at profitability. But you're right. In, in fact, the, you know, the defense industrial base was a little bit of a safe haven during the pandemic because it was critical infrastructure and the government kept spending money. So it did. And yet many of our indices still went down. And so you kind of say, ooh, you know, it could have been potentially even, even worse. Maybe I don't know. But, um, but and, and it's not a single point. That's the other thing I'd say about our report. Right. We don't look at one point. We look at uh, over time uh, going back several years. So uh, this is data that, you know, it's lagging, but it does collect data and it doesn't look at a single point. It's, uh, it's over time. So it gives you more fidelity on the numbers you're looking at. Um, let me uh, take you uh, to the point of how to change this, right? NDIA exists to serve its membership, so more than 1,700 companies from the very largest uh, to small mom and pop organizations, 400 of which participate in this study, by the way. You know, so you have a huge challenge to advance all of these, <laughs> you know, to herd all of these uh, very important cats in the right direction. Uh, but you're also working, uh, as Wes is and the uh, entire team, uh, to sort of focus on what your priorities are to actually move these needles in a beneficial way. From your, you know, we, we've got a lot of uh, members of Congress talking about the importance of change. We have folks in the administration who are talking about the importance of change, right? You come from the United States Air Force. Uh, one of the people that you mentored during your career was CQ Brown, who's uh, chief of staff of the Air Force. You've known Frank Kendall for uh, many decades. Uh, these are two leaders who are really trying to drive change. But every time uh, Hawk, uh, the United States Air Force, for example, has sought to retire aircraft, it doesn't need to invest in the capabilities it does. Members of Congress stop that because they really want those A-10s uh, not to go away, even if their relevance in future combat is limited, right? What are some of the things, walk us through the legislative priorities you guys have at NDIA to, you know, because your job is to balance that, right? Advance the interests of uh, your your membership, but also advance the, the national defense interests of the nation and do it in a credible fashion. What are the things that need to change over the next couple of years if we're going to get this right? Because ultimately, we depend on this industrial base to develop the capabilities we need as a nation, right? They're not coming out of government arsenals. You're entirely correct that that we've got to find ways to address this and uh, and go after it. So I, I think you know there's um, there's ones that we've talked about before the you know mid-tier acquisition OTAs. How do you accelerate uh, the ability to prototype and then field scale and field um, and and how do you uh, probably one of the big ones is how do you become less risk averse? I mean, there's a natural tension there, right? You you want to have, uh, you want to be able to take a little bit of risk so you can fail fast and and learn from that. Hopefully, fail cheaply, but learn from it so you can be successful in the next attempt. Uh, but on the same hand, the natural uh, tension is that these are taxpayer dollars. So any way you look at it, failing with taxpayer dollars does not go over well. And certainly with the 535 board of directors that the Department of Defense has on Capitol Hill, there is uh, a tendency to not look at failure um, as, a, as a way to be successful later on. So you have to we have to figure out a way how to do that. I think one of the other things in this kind of I think hopefully will come out as the PPBE commission steps up and uh, and we wrote a paper on that, on how you resource uh, 
how the resourcing is done. Obviously, the planning, programming, budgeting, and execution system is a McNamara 1960s era system. In the industrial age, it probably worked fine when most of the innovation was coming out of the government, but today that's not the case. So how do you change that system? How do you incentivize the right things? Uh, what is being incentivized now? And frankly, and I'll tell you, as we look at trying to change the, the resourcing process for the Department of Defense and spending government dollars, there's a lot of people that are vested in the current system. And, and that's one of the things you really hope this commission and the commission's got a, it's got an impressive group of folks on it. I, I think I know every one of them. They're smart folks that have been in this. They know the system. They understand it. We made this uh, paper that we produced available to them. Uh, that really looks in depth at, at what the current system is, where the incentives are, so we can start coming up with recommendations to fix it. But I think, you know, it's that agility. It's the ability to um, balance the taxpayer dollars and getting the most you can out of the dollars you're spending while still taking a little bit of risk and developing and feeling new capability faster. Um, and how do you... It, it, you know, frankly, how do you how do you work with Congress to have uh, some some money that does the work before you get to a program or record? You know, that does systems engineering, does the prototyping, uh, and we're getting some of that. You know, things like the Raider Fund and uh, 8A money, and so there 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 are things that are that are moving in the right direction. I think Congress gets it, but it, it there are people currently in the system that are invested in the way the current system works that we're going to have to work with to, to change it. Uh, Bob Hale, of course, former Pentagon comptroller, is the chair of this bipartisan commission uh, that's looking at the at the planning, programming, budgeting, and execution system, PPBE. Um, why don't you give us uh, a couple of the core recommendations you guys made in your paper, right? I mean, there are a lot of folks who've been working on this, but you guys uh, put a lot of effort in this also, and you're the guys who have the most stake in this, uh, ultimately, given you have the biggest membership uh, of any uh, national defense organization. Uh, walk us through some of the core things that this commission has to bear in mind as they go through this process, because you're right, right? Everybody is vested in the system that we have right now, and we need to change it for everybody's benefit, even if it may be a little painful to do it. Right. So, uh, so we, um, to be perfectly clear, this paper that we wrote, the first one, we are in the process of doing our second one. The first one lays out the system the way it is today. It talks about what happens, what, what we're, how it's incentivized, how things flow. So it really, you know, our intent in this first paper was because people talk about PPB and E, but they don't know what they're talking about in a lot of cases, you know, and there's so many different sides of it, right? There's the service side and then the OSD side, no OMB side, and then you get a president's budget from the administration. Then it goes over to the Hill. You get the authorizers and the appropriators. Um, so th there's a lot of facets to the, the process. So this first paper really just laid out what the current process was from all the different angles uh, and, and what the incentives are and what the disincentives are to help the commission and help us as now we write our second paper of, here's some of the things you have to look at. But I will tell you some of them that point to it is fairly obvious. Colors of money is a big challenge, right? If you, you know, 3,200, 3,400, 3,600, 3,010, 3,080, you have all these different colors of money and the ability to move across those is, is pretty limited. Got to go back to Congress for an omnibus reprogramming if it's above threshold or below threshold. Uh, in the middle of the year, you have an IBRC, an investment budget review 
committee and then you have an OBRC and operations budget review committee and you know you have O&M uh, and how can you move that into procurement or can you move that into RDT&E so some of the things is that color of money I think and then um, the, the, the speed, I think, you know, one of the things that I believe will come out there will be two year budget cycle instead of, you know, every year, um, that I think will give you some more level of stability, uh, where you get a two year top line uh, agreement, and then you start working budgets inside of that flexibility within the budgets, which goes to colors of money, I think is going to be a big player. And then speed. I mean, the, there's so many parts of this that people can say no, uh, or people can stop. And, and it, it's, it's the point where we've got to get faster and we've got to flatten that process. So I think there's a lot that's going to come out of it. I think the commission's, uh, you know, September 23 is when their reports due. Um, I think now with this paper that we wrote that really lays out the current system, now we can have a very fulsome dialogue about what are some of the things that are within the realm of the possible that we can work with Congress and the administration and it to start thinking about how we can change it. Sir, thanks very much. Always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Uh, look forward to getting a, another update from you uh, soon uh, and, uh, and keep breaking a leg. Thanks, Vargo. Take care, my friend. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.